This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Laura from AJ Bell and with me is Dan from Shares. Hi. So this week is the first of a three-part series where we get national journalists on to talk about the big topics that they're covering at the moment and what their readers are focusing on. So our guest this week is Sam Brockbeck from The Telegraph. Hello. So this week we're going to talk about the current pensions crisis in the NHS, whether anyone is brand loyalty anymore, why gold is the flavour of the month, and the bizarre business pairings like Primark and its sugar business. So first, let's look at what happened with Saga this week. So that was one of the big stories in markets, Stan. So Saga came out with some pretty damaging news, which really hurt its share price. It cut its dividend more than half, and it said it's having big problems with its insurance business. So over the years, Saga's developed this great reputation as being uh, a brand that over 50s go to use, predominantly for insurance, but also for travel services. Um, And I think it's just made this sort of uh, admission that people are now being less loyal to its brand than they used to be. So its insurance products are, you know, it's a commoditized industry. Um, It's now sort of saying, we're going to have to do something different, make sure our products stand out and they've got added features. Um, So all all this has sort of led to it saying, we're going to make significantly less profit in the future um, than people had been expecting. Um, So Saga, a couple of years ago, was saying, we're going to start this sort of membership scheme called um, Saga Possibilities. So it's kind of our little communities. If you're a customer, you're automatically a member and we'll give you money off various things. So as a way of sort of trying to engage with its audience and keeping people loyal. So I had a look at its website and it's got stuff like 20% off fish and chips in in one of these sort of pub chains um, or some money off going on some sort of holiday to Italy or something. Sounds great. Yeah, it sounds great. Sam but sold. Do you not like fish and chips? <laughs> I love fish and chips, but you can get all these offers anywhere. You really, yeah. you know, all these restaurant companies are offering um, bargains anyway. So why should you need to be a customer of Saga? So I was thinking, surely what they really want is like a knitting weekend with Judy Dench, don't they? Or something like that. Or, or can I have town crier lessons from Brian Blessed? I mean, to me, that's the sort of the unique sort of things that they should be going towards. Clearly, it may not be possible. Those two celebrities may Does not want Judy to. Does Judy Dench knit? Do we know that? I don't know. But Almost yeah. definitely. You can I tell. Re- you know, if I said to my mum, uh, are you interested in, in a, a knitting weekend with Judy Dench? She would literally be screaming, packing her suitcase, going, yeah, yeah, where is it? You I'd know? be quite excited, yeah. and I don't knit. And I'm not over 50, for the record. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that, you know, that, that they've tried, and, that, and now they've got this admission that, um, you know, the older generation, who the people tend to use their brand, they're really good at looking at the internet, looking around for stuff. Um, why do they need to be loyal? And so it's got to me thinking, is there anything in the world at the moment where you actually are loyal to a brand? I mean, Sam, are you loyal to any particular brand? Daily and Sunday Telegraph. Um, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Apart yeah. from that, I'm yeah. constantly shopping around. Yeah. And Laura, how about your loyalty towards a brand? Um, no, I don't think I am. I think the internet means that you just shop around for anything. I'm not sure there's any mm. one particular company that I would always go back to. Well, when we work together, ASOS seems to be quite... ASOS is a big feature in my life, but that's partly because it's just convenient and cheap. If another one came along that was the same, (sighs) so cynical. Oh dear. <laughs> so yeah, I guess with you know, if you have a subscription to something like Netflix or something, you you you're loyal up until the point you finally get round to cancelling it. But um, yeah, t- in this modern world, brand loyalty doesn't exist really, um, and so it's put Saga in a very difficult position. 
Um, and, 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 and since it's come out with this announcement, um, all the analysts at the sort of stockbroking investment banks are going, oh, we're really not sure about its new strategy either. It's talking about three-year fixed price insurance policies. Well, they're saying, well, what does that mean for sort of your capital requirements? Uh, is a risk that you're going to have to hold back loads of money to cover all this sort of promise and, um, and its share price is tumbling and tumbling and tumbling. Um, yeah, and it's in Do you think people, though, I think that's quite a good product for, for a certain demographic. Like my dad, who hates shopping around, yeah. hates the hassle. Actually, it's like a sort of mortgage, like a fixed-term mortgage, yeah. isn't it? Well, I guess that, that yeah, it, there definitely should be. So, yeah, they wouldn't have launched it without doing some research to say, is this what you want? Um, I guess in two, three years' time, they want to look back in hindsight and say, yeah, that was the best decision we ever made. But you know, we don't know until it happens, do we? So, so Sam, you have yes. been writing a lot in the Telegraph recently about the problems with tricky pension taxation rules and the impact that it's having on doctors and the NHS. Yes. Now, I need to qualify something because I'll get in trouble with another Laura, who I work with, Laura Miller, right. who has been doing lots of stories in this area. So I have not personally been writing about it, but obviously I'm editing her work very closely. So, And your readers just are in very interested in this. Yes. I think it's a very interesting one because it all comes down to the limits on what you can put into a pension. So there are two key figures. I'm sure we've spoken about them before. The lifetime allowance, how much you can save in total, and the annual allowance, how much you can save in a year. And um, our argument, and lots of people's argument, has always been it's, it's sort of the current system is very restrictive. Um, you don't actually have, you know, a million pounds, it's slightly over a million pounds, the lifetime allowance now isn't actually a huge amount when you convert that into income. Um, and I suppose in the past, the, the argument the government would say is, we you know, why do we want to give more tax breaks to wealthier people? Um, and you, I guess you can see the logic for that. Um, so the issue now, though, is that it's starting to affect senior doctors, which I guess everyone has an interest in. We don't want them to retire early. And the problem seems to be they're starting to turn down extra shifts um, or retire early completely. Um, and which this obviously is obviously at a point where the NHS has... Um staff shortages and so then that's starting to hit the NHS right yeah exactly so the argument we've always made that you know it's mad that you can say just because your investments have performed well we're going to stop you effectively saving into a pension um you know why why is that such a bad thing because you're kind of penalizing success in a way um and I think previously it was just difficult to make that case and now we have a real life example where it's starting to hit people that we don't definitely don't want to stop working so basically the issue is that they've built up to the lifetime limit in their pension pot and then they face high tax charges if they carry on earning and putting into their pension. So why can't they just stop paying into that pension though? Uh, it's just all this different NHS trusts have different rules. So you, it's not necessarily that simple. Um, there are two issues as well. So like I said, there's the annual allowance, how much you can save in a year and how much you can save over your lifetime. Um, and part of the problem is the, the so-called taper which affects the nightmare the annual taper. Allowance. You always used to teach me about this. Yes, I'm not sure I ever taper. fully understood it. <laughs> <laughs> now the nightmare is, is becoming reality, I think, because if you earn between £150,000 a year and £210,000 a year, uh, the amount you can put into a pension every year drops from 40k to 10k. Those figures seem quite high, but what also happens in the NHS a lot is that people get one-off awards for excellence in uh, being the best surgeon or whatever. So you get these kind of one-off payments, which can start to affect how much you can put into a pension. Um, and there comes a point where, I mean, some of the doctors are saying it's like working for free. It's not quite like that. Obviously, you still get paid. But I guess each year you work beyond when you're breaching these limits, it's sort of less, it's less worth your while. And I guess it's a stressful job. Why, why do it? So the interesting point now is 
will this make the government think, actually, these rules are slightly mad? There's now an example where it looks pretty bad that we brought in these controls, ostensibly to stop rich people taking lots of tax relief, um, but it's starting to impact on anyone who receives care. So this is likely one of those kind of unintended consequences of a government policy that at the time seemed to make sense and, like you say, was restricting tax relief for richer people, but yeah. they maybe didn't necessarily see that it would have this impact on um, doctors and maybe those that we don't necessarily think of are super high earners. Exactly, yes. Uh, like a lot of things, it's we can blame George Osborne for this. Because <laughs> um, he's not here to defend himself. Exactly, and he's <laughs> a rival newspaper, so it's absolutely fine to slag him off. Um, so you brought in these two things, the, the taper on the annual allowance, and he massively lowered the lifetime allowance, and it, it took a few years for it to start really biting. So now we have to see, does the government act and say, it's time, you know, we need to reform the rules. So what we, we would like to see is... We like the idea of, you know, it makes sense that you have controls on the annual allowance in some way, but the taper is so complicated to work out. It's on a sliding scale. You need an accountant or financial advisor to help you work it out. Get rid of that. If you want to have a lower annual allowance, that's fine, but just make it the same for everyone. And get rid of the lifetime allowance. So don't say there's a cap on how much you can save to a pension. You know, you should be rewarded for putting money away. Because one of the arguments of the lifetime allowance is that it's a kind of tax on people who save early and get like decent investment returns over a long period of time yeah it's sort of mad that you can it, it disincentivizes good investment performance which is mad i'm sure you'd agree but if they if they if the government were to change the rules and only made it applicable to doctors what about all the other people who are on good salaries they're going to turn around and say you know lawyers and stuff what, what hang on a minute we you know we're, we're working hard we're doing they will probably argue that they're doing a service, a good service to someone, aren't they? So it's, it's. I presume that this is going to, this is something that wouldn't be able to be dealt with easily because there'd be so many people arguing right. in think, their favour. I think you're right. I don't think you could carve out some people are deserving of this and some people aren't. Um, I think you'd have to do it for everyone. Then that would mean a big, you know, they make a lot of money from restricting the amount that tax relief they give to people on pensions. So, I guess in the current climate, that's quite difficult. Hmm. They're trying to get money from anywhere they can. If someone is having to pay extra tax because they're getting a generous pension, um, surely the the benefits of staying in that scheme aren't are they greater than the actual you know the, the taxes having to pay? Because I think with the NHS they get certain extra enhanced um, sort of life insurance and stuff, don't they, and things like that. I mean, I'm not I'm not a massive expert on the NHS scheme because it is really really complicated like a lot of the public sector ones they're slightly different to corporate schemes mm. but you're right i mean it's not you're still building up entitlement to a pension i don't think we can we can't feel really sorry for these people because if you are hitting those upper limits um you know so it's just like i say just over one million pounds i think in a in the nhs scheme you still be earning 45 46 grand a year um for life plus mm. a big lump sum so you know it's not can't, can't cry too many tears for me. It's just, I suppose, the absurd, uh, absurdities of the system that are creating this behaviour. I think also people don't necessarily understand that. So doctors aren't they're experts in lots of things, probably not on, on pension planning. And I think the, the BMA, so they're effectively their trade union, they're the ones kind of raising the alarm about this. And I suppose if you hear that from your representative, you know, maybe it's actually affecting behaviour slightly more than it should do if everyone understood exactly what they were giving up. Hmm. Well, maybe it's sort of shining the spotlight on the fact that um, if we're so reliant on sort of the, the, the older doctors to to be or their specialist knowledge, they should concentrate more on um, the recruitment of people into that 
industry. You know, if they're concerned that if people are um, stopping working early because they're worried about the pension stuff, then surely that sort of shifts. It's not simply just about pensions, is it? It's about making sure there's enough doctors in the system uh, who are developing their specialist yeah, knowledge. Right. I think it, so. We have we have a story uh, yesterday. Uh, so my, again, my colleague Laura wrote, um, which made that exact point. So the proportion of the NHS workforce that is over, I can't remember what the age is now, say 40 or 50, has gone up because they're not recruiting people at the bottom. Um, and like you say, if you if you fix that issue, mm. then I suppose it wouldn't matter so much about the top end. People could retire early if they wanted to. I guess this taps into so many issues, though, doesn't it? It taps into the whole NHS funding issue and filling staff sources. And also, I guess, some of that um, ageing population might be the of doctors might be that because some of the younger ones are moving out of the NHS and going into private practice or I guess this kind of highlights a whole problem all of the problems with the NHS and then as one part of that there's the all of the pensions issues which affect yeah. loads of other professions I don't know if we have time to solve the NHS crisis on this podcast do I we? don't think so I think that's next week's episode <laughs> <laughs> So at the start of the year, it's been marked by investor nervousness, despite all the major markets rising. Um, it's actually led to a flood of money going into gold. Um, so, Laura, do you, do you have a, an explanation of why people are chasing the shiny yellow metal? Brexit. You think so? Next segment. um no the so the start of this year we've seen particularly among uk investors which is what i've been focused on um we've seen lots of them selling out of their funds generally particularly selling out of equities and uk and european equities largely as a result of kind of uncertainty about brexit and people not knowing where markets are going to go a lot of them have been moving into global equity funds so they're getting more of a spread across um, different countries, I guess diversifying their exposure a bit. Um, some have been moving into kind of these one-stop shop mixed asset type funds, I guess partly because they're outsourcing the decision to fund managers. But lots of people are sitting in safe haven assets. So we've talked a lot before about people sitting in cash and having high cash levels, but they're also moving into gold, which I guess is seen as the kind of ultimate safe haven asset. Uh, when people are a bit nervous about where markets are going to go, but it's quite interesting because if you look at the gold price over the last year, it's not really on a twelve-month basis. It's gone nowhere. Um, I know it sort of dipped last year; it's gone up a bit. But despite all this talk of people going into gold, the the, sh- the price of it is not really rallying. Um, that would suggest that someone is selling at the same time as someone is is buying. You know, if, if the market dynamics work that way. Yeah, it's interesting. So some figures came out this week that shows that um, investors have roughly double the amount in gold than they did about four years ago. But the price back then was really low. So I guess that does highlight that people are piling into gold and that it has gone up maybe over that longer period of time, so four years or so. Yeah. I mean, it was the, you know, the, the, the last sort of gold, big gold rally was all sort of kind of linked to the dreaded quantitative easing where people sort of worried... Um, that interest rates weren't going anywhere, and then sort of the U.S. Federal Reserve, you know, weren't quite sure about its sort of monetary policy experiments, and so people were sort of going into gold, thinking that okay, at least some of my money will be sort of it will store its value. And actually, they pushed it up. But I sort of feel that um, there isn't that sort of that big buzz that everyone's talking excited about gold again. I don't know if you remember last time, but you. you 
because I, I write about the mining sector a lot, so I'd be talking to gold companies all the time, gold miners, and, and they would be like, yeah, yeah, we, we predict it's going to be hit like $5,000 an ounce, where it's, it's about 1300 now. Don't you um, find that people in the gold industry, I mean, their main job is talking up the price of gold. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So <laughs> we get press releases all the time from you know, these various companies that let you buy, I don't know, a fraction of a gold bar or, or wh- whatever it is, and they're constantly telling you it's about to go up. So like you say, the money coming out at the other end, yeah. presumably, is people... That that's working, isn't it? They're pumping <laughs> it enough for them to, to cash yeah. in. But I remember that you you sort of see stories on the news about people queuing up in their lunch breaks to buy gold coins. Um, and it was all, and uh, the analysts were sort of valuing all these exploration companies at absolutely stupid levels. Well, you know, it's literally just either a field with a, um, something shining on the ground, which turned out to be a bit of gravel rather than <laughs> gold or something. But it, it was, I don't, I just don't feel we're in that sort of euphoria stage at the moment. No, uh, I think we're kind of in just people generally being a bit cautious and I blamed it all on Brexit but it's actually a bit broader than that isn't it it's to do with US-China trade wars it's to do with general uncertainty about global growth slowing and I don't think we're necessarily definitely not in the kind of gold mania stage I just think it's interesting that some investors are moving there so it just made me think that because Bitcoin jumped up again didn't it a couple of weeks ago and I wonder now if crypto there are some type of people who uh, hold gold who maybe also are attracted to crypto in the kind of way it's sort of you know outside you like if you like the kind of financial system and actually that's eating up a bit of the kind of dash to safety. Yeah, potentially that's potentially. my theory. That's maybe someone theory. can work it out. I've got no facts to back it up, but it sounds believable. Neither do I, but. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Dan, you've been looking at the strange company conglomerates that exist and what that means for investors. So give us some examples of weird company pairings. Well, so you know, if you don't know you. Uh, hopefully, most people know the term conglomerate. If you don't quite know what it means, it's essentially a, a wait, Sam. Do you know what conglomerate means? Yeah, but it's probably better for you, say. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like a, a massive company that owns businesses, and most of them probably not in the same market. So uh, I think the one that people will probably be most familiar with on the UK stock market is Associated British Foods. So it owns Primark the fashion chain. Um, but it also owns Rivita, um, Ovaltine, um, and it's got like... It Is Ovaltine still a thing? Yeah. Do you like Ovaltine? I think there might be some Saga customers who I still bet enjoy Judy a bit of Ovaltine. Yeah. <laughs> On a knitting weekend. <laughs> um, so, you know, they do, and they own like yeast stuff. They've got like f- food business and, and they're thinking, what, what on earth is, why would I want, Riv- you know, why is a company own Rivita and... Um, you know, a, a fluffy jumper business. You know, it's like <laughs> it's madness. So this uh, this conglomerate thing it goes back years and years, where you'd have companies thinking we will grow by acquisition, um, and after a while they think, okay, let's let's step out into different industries. I mean, there's some cracking examples over the years. Like, did you know that Labrooks used to own Hilton Hotels? Oh, and a Texas DIY store. Yeah. That Texas DIY store seemed very niche. Where does Paris Hilton come into this? Does she bet? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just knocked you off your phone. <laughs> that is a great fact, though. Yeah, so I mean, what happened was Labrys changed its name to Hilton um, after buying the business. And then Hilton spat out all the gambling bits and just focused on hotels. But P&O, Ferries, they used to own Bovis Homes, the home house builder. Um, yeah, and Polly Peck, which is like uh, a name in sort of business scandal history, they they started out as a textile business, and then they got into things like the Del Monte canned fruit stuff. Then they thought, okay, we'll 
We'll own uh, companies that make color TVs, uh, the Betamax video recorder, all that sort of stuff. And it was just, it, it, all these things, they don't, they don't really, there's no synergy. They don't, I don't understand why they were there. Um, Polypec actually turned out just, it was a FTSE 100 company and then collapsed and its uh, former chief exec is now in prison because he stole millions of pounds from the business. So, oh. um, But yeah, it, it's, it's the idea of like, you, you have, why should a company have multiple interests in different markets? So th the trend at the moment is for companies to start to break themselves up. This isn't, you know, conglomerates are not in fashion. So we've got various companies like Smith's Group, which is a um, mixture of engineering and detection. Like, have you ever been to an airport and had to, um, I went to Turkey last year and I noticed all the equipment in the airport there was Smith's detection stuff. Um, and they, You're and they always working, aren't you? Always yeah. looking for the next stock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they, they, they made me take all my stuff out of my bag and then they swiped it all and then they, they, they put these sort of swabs in this machine. It looks like almost like they were sending a fax um, <laughs> and, and it'll come out and then obviously if it was green it means that you, you live another day or if it's red you, you know, you're off to prison or something. But um, So Smith's make that but they also do like those medical things so they're sp spinning out the medical stuff. Um, and there's companies like ThyssenKrupp, General Electric, United Technologies. They're all, they're all going through different sort of stages. Um, and and it, sort of, it, it sort of leads me to think, why on earth do you have a conglomerate in the first place? Um, and it, and it get, comes down to this acquisition um, thing. And they make this argument that if you're a big company, you can go and borrow money cheaply because the lenders will go, okay, you, well, you know, you've got really good diversification risks, therefore we hope that you're going to pay back our money so we'll give you a lower rate um, and there's this potential for synergies but i guess the big thing is that they're a bigger company and that diversification risk so you would hope that if people stop buying certain products in one market that might be the time when another product booms and i guess you hope that you're kind of protecting yourself against different economies no that's that's exactly right and that's what association of british foods says they say, we're never going to break up. Uh, we've got that comfort thing. So at the moment, their sugar business is doing terribly. But they're going, it's fine because Primark is keeping us keeping the lights on. Um, but you have this, the arguments against conglomerates are multitude. How can the chief executive understand each of those businesses? Well, this is, that's exactly one of the main things, isn't it? I, I refuse to believe you have a chief exec who can understand multiple industries really well. Because surely they're just turning to the heads of each department saying, you know, what's going on with sugar? Okay, that's fine. I'll agree. You make the decisions. I'll go yes or no. But that's not really how you should be running a business, is it? So th they're really hard to understand. If you look at the accounts from an like, investment point of view, you can't see quite all the details you'd want if it was just a single market company. Um, How do the markets view them? Is there a kind of, they're not happy with? The market, they've been terrible investments for many years. The markets like them to a point because they're, if, they're, if they're growing fast, but most of them have sort of reached this point where they're struggling. They've got lots of things going wrong. Um, and, and they get susceptible to government interference. So a government might come along and say, oh, you know that? factory you said you're going to close because no one you're not using it mm, it might not be the good thing because we really want that open because it sort of it keeps potential for jobs in the future and so there's little things like that they're forced to make these decisions which aren't really for the best of the company or it might be the government says you know we're doing this vanity project but well, whilst they would probably wouldn't use the word vanity but yeah it's kind of <laughs> what they're doing they say could you take part um, and it's not it's not the good thing and then it's the cult of the ceo as well where you know what it's like as a journalist, but if a, if a 
if a company's buying things, constantly growing, you think, okay, this is good, I want to write about it. And so they get loads of publicity. So the more publicity they get, it goes to their head and they start to lose touch reality. And it sort of, this cycle continues and they become this sort of, this cult figure um, who, you know, I, I won't, I, I can think of many examples, but um, I don't, I won't name them now for fear <laughs> of legal, <laughs> legal action. It's quite interesting, isn't it? I mean, it, I, I keep thinking while you're talking that it's a bit like what a fund manager does in the sense that you have to understand lots of different businesses that you are investing in. You're trusting in that, you know, there's a cult there as well, isn't there, of the staff and manager? There is. Um, they would probably argue that they've got people, support people who are experts in it or there's certain funds who actually they, they have, whilst there's an overall fund manager, there'll be um, the individual experts. Like Witan is a good example, a really famous investment trust who has multiple different managers who are experts in certain fields and therefore it can get around um, the argument that, you know, you can't, you can't be good at everything. So, I mean, th so th the direction is for these things to be broken up, but inevitably, when a company's organic growth becomes really hard to keep going, they'll turn to like, they'll go, well, we'll have to grow through acquisitions. And then after a while, they'll do more acquisitions and then Cycle will repeat itself and say, oh, we've, we've shown that we're really good at acquisitions. Let's branch out into other markets. And it, you can see it will just come back again. But, you know, that's probably many years away, that direction. Uh, but it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a really interesting topic. Yeah, and I had no yeah. idea that those businesses were connected. Learning something new every day. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks a lot for listening this week. As ever, you can send any thoughts or ideas you have to podcast at ajbell.co.uk. And we'll see you next week. Thanks. Thanks. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. The podcast talks about various money issues. Just don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. You should also recognise that how an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future and that tax rules apply.